Well, it's a sign of a really good leader and a really good team when the leader makes a phone call about six in the morning and lets them know that he's not going to be there and they do, they, they come through like this team just did. So deeply thankful for Daniel Creswell's leadership and for that fantastic team of people that he leads this morning. Um, during this season of Lent, we've been walking through Jesus last week. Uh, together kind of day by day as as best we can and each of the days throughout history if we can review it a little bit has required a unique name we started this last week on Lazarus Saturday when Jesus showed up in freshly resurrected Lazarus home and Mary anointed him with that very expensive perfume as a readiness for his burial Um, Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna and the waving of palm branches. Fig Monday is when Jesus cursed that fig tree. Um, Great and Holy Tuesday, we also called it Teaching Tuesday because Jesus taught and taught and taught and taught and taught on Tuesday things about the coming judgment and being ready for his return that's where we got this uh, 2444 uh, acronym or marker that's been around the church that comes from Matthew 2444 that simply says, therefore you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Spy Wednesday was when a disciple became a spy and Judas agreed to betray Jesus. Maundy Thursday, Maundy comes from the word for command and Jesus washed his disciples' feet and instituted the Lord's Supper and and gave his disciples a new commandment that they should love one another as as he had loved them. And then um, he has prayer in the garden with his disciples and he's arrested there late on Thursday night. And Good Friday, Jesus' trials run through that night and into Friday morning and at 9 o'clock Friday morning he is crucified. And he hangs in agony on the cross for six hours until 3 p.m. when he says it is finished. And that's where we want to pick up the story of Jesus last week today. Is right there at 3 p.m. when Jesus is on the cross. Um, It continues into the next day, which has historically been called Black Saturday. Um, Now, Saturday was the Sabbath, so some of my staff has suggested it should have been called Black Sabbath, (laughs) but that brought to mind really depressing rock and roll music with titles like Paranoia and Electric Funeral. So we're going to stick with the um, traditional title of Black Saturday. Because the name, surely it described that day, right? I mean, Jesus is crucified on Friday. He's not resurrected until Sunday. This had to be, from the perspective of Jesus' followers, the darkest of days. Um, It was a day for them, a day without hope, really. And the week had started fabulously with Palm Sunday and the shouts of Hosanna, But then there were debates with the leaders and there was a near riot in the temple and Judas slipped out during that last meal and that led the crowd armed with swords and clubs to the garden to arrest Jesus and everyone fled and 
All of that happened with 12 hours. Um, And then the next 12 would get worse. At 9 a.m. that Friday morning, they nailed Jesus to a tree. And at noon, the sky grew dark. And at 3 o'clock that Friday afternoon, Jesus, their leader, their Savior, their Messiah, the embodiment of their hope, was gone. Matt Woodley describes the blackness of that day through the disciples' eyes. He says, Jesus was gone. Their dreams of redemption were gone. The hope that God was with us was gone. The hope of forgiveness was gone. And as they watched Jesus die, they also realized that The hope for life beyond death was gone. Like everyone else, the disciples would now die in their sins. In every way imaginable, they had hit a dead end. Black Saturday, as we call it, really gets an early start at 3 o'clock that good Friday afternoon. It was a hopeless, meaningless day. But, you know, it's interesting, even, even on what we call Black Saturday and the Friday leading into it, there are little glimmers of hope that I think are sown there for our encouragement because we see a faithfulness, um, little, little acts of faithfulness um, amongst the unli- most unlikely of Jesus' disciples. And that's what we want to look at today. We'll, we'll be... Um, Picking up our story on the dark hours of Good Friday afternoon, moving a little bit into that Black Saturday then, um, mostly working out of Matthew 26 and 27, or 27, that last part of 27, starting in verse 55. You want to open your Bibles there. We'll draw from the other gospel accounts again as well, but that's a good place to stick your finger. Uh, Matthew 27, starting in verse 55, and uh, let, me, let me pray for us as we do that. Would you bow with me? So Jesus, bring us hope, bring us encouragement today, by your word we ask. Hardship is where some of us are living right now, days that seem hopeless to us, and then we know that those days wait for us, no one is immune from those days, and so I pray that today you might strengthen our faith such that whether we live in that day or it comes to us in the future, we would be ready to be numbered amongst the faithful ones like those we are about to see. And Jesus, we ask this for your name's sake. Amen. All right, starting in Matthew 27, verse 55, 3 o'clock, Good Friday afternoon. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, up until now, the portrayal of all the disciples has been faithlessness, right? They all abandoned Jesus. But the focus shifts with these faithful few who are singled out as remaining there. And they are women. Um, And we know from other accounts that John was there at the cross with Jesus' mother, Mary. Um, And Luke tells us 
that there were other acquaintances there. In Luke 23, verse 49, it says, all, all Jesus' acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So there were a few of the other disciples likely present there, but the focus and the presence of these women really seems to be central in this account of late Friday um, afternoon. Um, in the Passion narratives, the women are presented as the faithful ones. The men, not so much. Okay. Um, so, there were many women there, and they had journeyed faithfully with Jesus, it says, all the way from Galilee. So these are women who had been following his ministry for a season. Galilee's 80, 100 miles away. Um, and they had heard him teach. They had watched him heal. And as we'll see in a few minutes, they had even personally benefited from his power. Um, and nearby the cross, these women are portrayed as occupying a place of faithful love. And we pick that up mostly because of what Matthew does next. He identifies three of these women in particular. There were many, but he points out three of them. And uh, I like the way Professor Dale Bruner says it of this listing of the women's names. He calls it an honor roll. And he says, and at the head, as in every other listing of women in this gospel, is Mary Magdalene. Apparently, she was the most faithful woman of all, and so Matthew honors her especially by naming her first. Mary Magdalene, we first meet this Mary back in Luke chapter 8. Um, this is kind of her story. It says, uh, soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Okay. Mary, from the city of Magdala, from the village of Magdala, had been beautifully rescued by Jesus from seven demons, we learn. And the sense is that she has followed him ever since. I mean, how could you not, right? How could you not? And um, later in our, let's see, uh, it's been pointed out in our story that at, at the time of Jesus' death, not only is she honored by being the first listed, she's the only person who appears by name in all four of these post-resurrection accounts that the Gospels tell. Um, later in our story, down in verse 61, she's one of two women who not only are at the cross, but they faithfully follow his body to the tomb. It says uh, that he rolled a great stone to the entrance of Jesus' tomb. This is Joseph and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. They were there, sitting opposite the tomb. After the resurrection, we'll, we'll see this next Sunday, guaranteed, next Sunday we get to the resurrection, okay? We will celebrate Resurrection Sunday next week. Lent will be done, and Daniel Creswell, Lord willing, will be back 
on steroids and caffeine. So come with a seatbelt next week to celebrate the resurrection. We're going we're gonna to take Daniel Creswell off the chain next week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but Mary Magdalene, is the f- she's also the first woman at the tomb the em- when it's empty. Um, and in Matthew, Mark, and John, it's Mary who's the first to witness Jesus' resurrection. It's Mary Magdalene who first bore the news to the disciples that he was risen and that she had seen him. One writer said that after Jesus, she is the most faithful person in the Gospels. So even on this darkest of days, Mary Magdalene encourages us that followers of Jesus can be faithful on the most troubling, the most suffering, full, sorrowful of days. She helps us see that. Now, there are two other women that Matthew intentionally singles out amongst the many who are at the cross. And both of these are identified as being mothers. Uh, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It says, uh, there are also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, and among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, this second Mary that's listed here is likely also called the other Mary. We've got Mary Magdalene, and then she is likely the one that's called the other Mary, who's faithfully present at both Jesus' burial, as we've seen down in verse uh, 60 and 61, where it says, uh, Mary, there was a great stone at the entrance of the tomb, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary were there. So likely this is, these two Marys are traveling together from the cross, following the body to the tomb. She's also at the resurrection. It says now in, in 28 verse 1, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that's Resurrection Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And so, you know, again, on this saddest of days, this other Mary, we don't don't know anything about her other than this, this other Mary encourages and calls us to faithful love of our Savior, even on the hardest of days, most discouraging of days. Now, let's look again at the the third woman that's mentioned um, as being present at the cross. She... We don't even know her name. She's just known as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The mother of the sons of Zebedee. We never get to know her name, but we first meet her family back, way back in Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus calls her two sons, James and John, to follow him. And uh, Tanya Rybarczyk writes about it. She says, Matthew 4 tells how Jesus saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. He called them, Jesus did, and immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. 
She says Zebedee's wife is not mentioned here. In fact, she's never named in Matthew's gospel. Still, after reading this passage, she says, I'm haunted by a vision of her stunned and uncomprehending expression when Zebedee, her husband, returns that evening without her sons. I picture the wooden table laid with bowls and bread and her savoring a moment of peace before her sons of thunder, that was their nickname, the sons of thunder, arrive home while simultaneously looking forward to their boisterous presence. The fire is old but burning, and as she hears the door creep open, a smile breaks and then fails. She sees Zebedee gaze at her and beyond her at the same time. He looks older than he did that morning, old and so, so tired. She tries looking around him, then over his shoulder to catch a glimpse of her sons, but they are not there. What words, she writes, I wonder, did Zebedee use to explain his son's opening their hands, dropping their nets, and leaving without saying goodbye, all because of just a few brief words from some passing Galilean. Could any suffice? I imagine her, after a moment of stunned silence, walking right past him to flee the house, lest she take her anger out on her husband. Her hands press her hips as she looks up at the night sky. The wind brushes her cheek, and she hates it for its futile attempt to comfort. She tries to breathe, just breathe, It is unfathomable. All those years she sacrificed and loved and hurt, and now they are gone, just gone, and her future most likely gone with them. I picture, she writes, Zebedee sitting inside, his face leathered from sun and wind, staring down at his dirty calloused hands, suddenly weary. And when we see her next, though, she says, circumstances have changed. The next time we see her, she is on her knees before Christ, asking him to grant her boys seats to his left and to his right in the kingdom. And Matthew 20 tells that story. You may remember it. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, again, our, our lady, came up to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, obviously, circumstances have changed, but it appears that the mother of the sons of Zebedee has now joined the entourage of women who follow Jesus. She makes a request on behalf of her son that appears to be kind of posturing them for greatness. And it infuriates the remaining ten disciples, quite possibly because they didn't think of it first. But Jesus' response to her request, which he addresses to her sons, I think he must have seen them hiding behind their mother's skirt there. Um, that reply had to have special meaning for her. This is what Jesus answered her request. To her sons, he says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. Um, The imagery of the cup of Jesus' destiny of suffering and judgment is now playing out before this mother's eyes as she sits there at the cross. And she has to be wondering, is this what waits for my sons? 
because of my request? One writer fleshed it out this way. He says, when I noticed that that detail this week, it changed my entire attitude towards their mother. I'd always thought of her as someone who wanted to grab power and honor for her sons, which according to Matthew, she apparently was. But that's where my evaluation of her had ended. Now, though, he says, I see her standing at a distance from the cross watching Jesus die, and I realize that I must number her among that group of women who loved Jesus enough to be there for him in his final hours. I see her standing there watching and hearing the echo of the words that Jesus had spoken to her sons after she made her request, you will drink the cup that I will drink. How could she help but think as she watched Jesus suffer and die, they must, my boys must, drink the cup that he is drinking. How could she help but remember as she watched those two thieves dying on Jesus' right hand and on his left that she had asked, she their mother had asked, that her sons be in those very positions. And yet, here she is, late on Good Friday afternoon, with all the worries and concerns a mother could have for her boys, and she is there at the cross, still faithfully following Jesus, even if at a distance. Now Matthew and John together both record another grouping of faithful disciples in the midst of, of this uh, darkness that follows the cross. Um, and thankfully, these are men. So men, there's hope. Starts in verse 57 of chapter 27 in Matthew. When it was evening, that Good Friday evening after the cross, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Now, we don't know a lot about this Joseph from Arimathea, but when you do piece together all that the Gospels say about him, it paints a really interesting portrait. Matthew tells us here that he is rich, which in the Gospel of Matthew is not the most promising of things. Okay? Jesus himself had said that rich men have more trouble getting in the kingdom of God than a camel getting through the eye of a needle. We also learn that in spite of the barrier that wealth can be, Matthew tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus. And as we put the pieces together in the other gospel accounts, we learn more. Luke describes this way. He says, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, uh, the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. That is their decision and action um, to crucify Christ. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. John adds this little bit of information. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he's a prominent Jew a leader on their council, 
and a secret disciple of Jesus because he's afraid of what it will cost him. And after the crucifixion of Jesus, Mark tells us in Mark 15, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Good Friday, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. The secret disciple takes courage. And he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. Here we find this secret disciple boldly going to Pilate, um, the most powerful Roman authority in their land, and requesting the body of Jesus, giving up his own tomb to honor Jesus with a proper burial. You know, um, on the edge of Black Saturday... On this darkest of days, here we have another little glimmer of hope. And his name is Joseph. And he no longer follows secretly, but he follows Jesus boldly now. By his faithfulness, it's a pointer to another messianic prophecy that tells who Jesus was. It's interesting, Isaiah 53, way back hundreds and hundreds of years before, wrote this about the Messiah. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Had it not been for Joseph, the practice of the Romans was to just let the carcasses of their victims rot on the cross. At best, they received a mass burial in an unmarked grave. But instead, Jesus has a burial befitting the wealthy. And it says in verse 60 of our passage that Joseph rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. And then he simply went away. And that's all we hear of Joseph of Arimathea. Dale Bruner says, it's as though Joseph's whole life was a preparation for this one day's work. He was the man who did one thing and did it beautifully, faithfully, courageously, on the darkest of days. See, Joseph's story is an example to us, calling us to faithfulness on our dark days, the suffering, hopeless days, days when God seems absent or at least silent and our suffering is very great. We remember the faithful love of Joseph for his Savior, how he honored him, even when he did not understand. The darkness made him bolder, it seems. And so, it's interesting. Both at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' life, we find a faithful Joseph and Mary. There's an old poem by Richard Crashaw. It goes this way. How life and death in thee agree. Thou hadst a virgin womb and tomb, and Joseph did betroth them both. I like the way um, Dale Bruner puts it. He cites someone called Pseudo Augustine. He says this, 
Jesus was placed in another person's tomb because he died for the salvation of all other persons. So be encouraged. God strengthens disciples for days like this. And he dots the dark days with testimonies of faithfulness for our encouragement when we face our own dark days. Let's add another glimmer to this second group of faithful disciples here. This one's name, amidst the post-cross darkness, this faithful disciple's name is Nicodemus. We first met Nicodemus, and we only hear of him in John's Gospel. In John chapter 3, famously, he came alone and at night to visit Jesus. It says, now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Like Joseph, he's a Jewish religious leader. And this man came to Jesus by night, secretly as it were, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. And this conversation unfolds between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus ends that conversation with this kind of cryptic reference to his crucifixion. He says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then we next hear of Nicodemus in John chapter 7, where he steps forward to defend Jesus amongst his peers. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, one of the leaders, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? It's not a compliment. It's like, are you a hick from there too? Are you one of his followers is the implication? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee But the next and final time we hear of Nicodemus is on this Good Friday afternoon after the cross as John is telling Joseph of Arimathea's story. And it goes like this in John 19, starting in verse 38. After these things, after the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate they might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You know, on the previous Saturday, we call it Lazarus Saturday, Mary had brought one liter of perfume to anoint Jesus in anticipation of his burial. And now, on this Friday, Good Friday afternoon, Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of perfumes and spices to fulfill that promise. Dale Bruner says, now finally, near the end of the gospel, Nicodemus goes completely public 
with almost 100 pounds of spices, making a burial literally fit for a king. And so it seems what has happened here is not once, but twice, a camel has passed through the eye of a needle, and two rich men have entered the kingdom of God. It's not possible with men, but all things are possible with God, Jesus says. As members of the Sanhedrin, as leading Jewish leaders, this bold declaration by Joseph and Nicodemus of their faithfulness to Jesus had to be a kind of land, of a line in the sand. They were choosing publicly to follow Jesus. And this is what secret followers of Jesus are called to do. Take a stand as a follower of Jesus. Does your family know that you follow Christ? Do your friends at work know that you follow Christ? Do your teachers know that you follow Christ? Do your classmates know that you follow Christ? Secret followers need to take a stand as a follower of Jesus. Baptism is one of those beautiful ways that we do that. You publicly stand and testify, I follow Christ, and you walk out into the waters of baptism. But also, in your everyday conversations, in your everyday conduct, you identify as a follower of Jesus. And these two did it when they had absolutely nothing to gain and only love to give. We should too. So now, we find ourselves leaving the account of the, as we enter the evening hours of Good Friday and actually moving into what we call Black Saturday. Um, in verse 62 of Matthew chapter 27, the next day... That is, the day after the day of preparation, after Good Friday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You get a sense that the religious leaders are desperate to squelch even the rumor, the possibility of a rumor of a resurrection. And it's interesting, Jesus' opponents seem to grasp his prediction, his prediction of resurrection better than the disciples did. So vital to their strategy was squelching the hope of resurrection that they would go once again and beg before Pilate, calling him, I believe, for the only time they ever address him this way, Sir or Lord. 
And they procure a guard to make sure nothing happened to the body. Why go to so much trouble? Why grovel before Pilate? Why get a guard and post them round the clock for three days? It's a fascinating book made into a movie. It's by a man named Ernest Gordon. The, the movie is To End All Wars, and it is powerful and provocative. Um, Ernest Gordon was the dean of the chapel of Princeton University for 26 years. But he experienced his call to ministry in a Japanese concentration camp during World War II. Gordon and his fellow prisoners were used as slave labor to build the Thailand-Burma Railroad, and hundreds of them perished from mistreatment. As an officer, Gordon struggled to help his men make sense of all the suffering they had to endure. He became deathly ill, however, and was spared only by the care of the chaplain who was imprisoned with them. His name was Dusty Miller. Dusty shared his own precious rations with Gordon. And at one point, as Chaplain Miller nursed Gordon's broken body back to health, he spoke the words that would nurse Gordon's broken soul back to health as well and call him into ministry. Miller told him, a man can experience an incredible amount of pain and suffering if he has hope. When he loses his hope, that's when he dies. Now, the hope of resurrection even just as a rumor, would have such a powerful effect, so powerful that the leaders in fear would post a guard to prevent it from spreading. So they would do what they had to, whatever they had to, to make that tomb secure. Did you notice when I read that passage three times it says, make the tomb secure. They went and made the tomb secure secure by sealing a stone and getting a guard. If I was going to give a title just to this section of Black Saturday text, I would call it, good luck with that. <laughs> they could not secure it, not even for 48 hours. Black Saturday is immediately followed by Resurrection Sunday. And I, I love the description Matt Woodley gives of their efforts to secure the tomb. He says, you've got to be kidding. They put a pathetic little seal on Jesus' tomb? That's like trying to, wake, trying to wrap up a sleeping lion with a couple twisty ties. Jesus will burst the seal just like he tore the veil from top to bottom, shook the earth, broke open the tombs, raised the dead. He came to set captives free, and your little seal won't stop that. Their best efforts, the governor's seal, the military guard, the large stone couldn't secure this tomb. All that their efforts could do was to underscore the miraculous nature of the empty tomb on that next Resurrection Sunday morning. So, the lesson from Black Saturday. Some of you are walking through the darkest of days. And 
Some of those days God seems silent, if not entirely absent. And I hope you are encouraged by this band of women who faithfully followed, even when their hope had been shattered. Their love sustained them. They followed Jesus to the cross, they followed him to the tomb, and they would be there when he rose from the dead by the power of God. If you have been timid about your faith in a particular setting, maybe in a particular relationship, I hope you're encouraged by Joseph and Nicodemus who secret disciples of Jesus, both of them it appears, went public with their faith in love for Jesus. It's interesting, the the trigger for their remarkable love for Jesus that drove their faithfulness on this hardest of days, when when they were in their deepest sorrow, it seems to be this, it seems to be what they witnessed on the cross. Though they didn't understand it fully, somehow they knew that they had seen the greatest demonstration of the love of God that could ever be. And may our faith and love be so strengthened, even now, as we approach this table and we remember together that on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, on Maundy Thursday, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, help us remember, even in our sorrows, even in our suffering, as those things drown out your voice and we wonder if you hear us, if you're near to us, if we can still be faithful, if we should still be faithful. Um, And so today we remember when we are here in our right minds worshiping you in faith, how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of God for us in Christ as you spread your arms on that cross and bore it for us. The love of God has risen beyond question, even on Black Saturday. So now as we come, we who believe, as we come, help us, Lord, to remember and to never forget. 